the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. My friends, this book begins with a wonderful introductory outline where we can absorb a number of essential elements. First of all, it is distinguished by its official tone, which reminds the inscriptions of the books of the Old Testament. Its beginning compares with the grandeur of the beginning of the book of Isaiah. For instance, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amoz, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Isaiah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Second, the character of the book is made known by the name Revelation, and the holy writer calls to our attention that what we have in front of us is a prophetic book. Third, the validity and authenticity of this book is declared because the source of this book is God himself, Jesus Christ, whether he speaks personally or through an angel. Fourth, the purpose of the writing of this book is pointed out where he says, show unto his servants, to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. So here we have a record of the purpose of this writing of the book of the Revelation. And a purpose against to show unto the servants of God those things which must take place soon. A fifth observation is the identification of the writer. And who is the writer other than John? Unto his servant John and here we have St. John, the evangelist, the disciple that Jesus loved, the writer of the gospel according to John in the three Catholic epistles. A sixth point, the content of the book is revealed, who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all the things that he saw. So St. John bears record of the word of God. So the book of the Revelation is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ and all the things that he saw. He will not add or subtract. And at the end of the book, John himself will note anyone who adds anything to the words of this book. God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes words away from this book of prophecy, God will take away from him his share in the tree of life, meaning he will not enter the kingdom of God. John is very careful to record only what he saw and heard and nothing more. Again, the central theme of this book is the second coming of Christ, the war of the godless powers against the church, their big defeat, handed to them by Christ, and the glorious reign of Christ unto the ages of ages. A seventh point, the purpose of this book is made clear by the blessing which it bestows on those that read 
and those that hear and those that keep the word of God. Blessed is he that reads and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein. And finally, what is also recorded here is that the time of the fulfillment of the content of this book is short. For the time is at hand. The time's at hand. So all these things that we see in the introductory outline of this book, all this information in just a few lines. And now, by the grace of God, we will proceed to interpret the Holy Script word by word and phrase by phrase. It has so much beauty. There's so much beauty that even if they would tell us to hurry along, how can we possibly hurry? When the script itself stops you, it slows you down, it stops you dead in your tracks, it demands your attention. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Revelation or apocalypse in Greek. With these words, this great book of the New Testament begins. But what is the meaning of the word revelation? Initially, it means that this book is prophetic. And it is the only prophetic book of the New Testament, even though the other books of the New Testament have prophetic elements as well, whether they have a historical character like the Gospels or a letter character like the epistles of St. Paul, Peter, John, James, and so on. And even though they are full of prophetic references, however, these are not especially prophetic. They are historical, advisory, and so on. The book of the Revelation is especially prophetic. The only one in the New Testament, even though it is full of spiritual counsels as well. According to St. Andrew of Caesarea, Revelation is the declaration of hidden mysteries which take place by the illumination of the noose, whether by divine dreams or visions, or in a state of of wakefulness like St. John. St. John was not asleep. He was quite awake. He was not dreaming. Daniel in the Old Testament, however, saw these things in his dreams while he was asleep. He saw those great images, great visions in the book of Daniel, but he was asleep. John here is quite awake. He will say, I was on the island of Patmos. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, Kiriaki, on Sunday. I heard a voice, I turned around and I saw what I saw, someone like the Son of Man, the glorified Jesus. And he told me, I am the one walking among the lampstands to the seven churches, write these things that I'm about to tell you. So John is fully awake. But the word revelation has also a deeper meaning. Many times we use this term, revelation, without managing to understand it fully. Generally speaking, revelation means that God is revealing himself to men, and this revelation is either direct or indirect, with its purpose being always to lead people to the knowledge of God. God is not unknown. He's known and unknown at the same time. He's known because 
God wants to be in communion with his creation. At the same time, he is unknown because he is the unsearchable, the untouchable, the unfathomable, the everlasting, the timeless, the one above the sensual and created nature because the substance of God will always escape the knowledge of all created beings. And this is why he is the known unknown. These are all expressions of the so-called apophatic theology. And this very thing that I'm saying, for example, I don't know what God is. And the more I learn about him, I become more sure that I don't know God. This is an apophatic stand towards the knowledge of God. However, God loves to reveal himself. He never keeps to himself. And he reveals himself either directly or indirectly. And the revelation of God can be visualized in a natural divine revelation or the supernatural divine revelation. The natural divine revelation has three spheres through which God is revealed inside his creation. First of all, he reveals himself through creation itself. Second, through men himself. And third, through the human history and the history of the creation. Through creation, God reveals himself according to the words of St. Paul in Romans chapter 1, verse 20. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. So within creation, we recognize God's qualities in a cataphatic way, not apophatic, as we mentioned before. Here, the knowledge is in a cataphatic way through the very creations. When we have such a vast universe, and this universe, even the corners of this universe, have never been reached by any human telescope, not only that, but our own imagination cannot travel that far. Science today talks about 200 billion suns in our own galaxy, in our own Milky Way galaxy. They're talking about 100 billion galaxies. Andromeda is the closest galaxy to ours, the closest galaxy, and it's 1.5 million light years away. The diameter of the universe is 18 billion light years. Again, this is making us dizzy. At the same time, we are not capable to imagine a finite universe with limits, and we cannot grasp this, but at the same time, we cannot perceive a universe without boundaries. Now, if, if we have such a vast and mind-boggling universe, then what can we say about our God? Then God must be eternal, everlasting, infinite. So God is almighty, all wise. So where do we see these qualities? From God's creation. So God is revealed through his creation. This is why, my friends, there has never been a godless nation in human history, precisely because God reveals himself through his creatures. The phenomenon of atheism 
of our times is a sickened state of today's men who is in desperate need of a psychiatrist. Every atheist becomes the subject of psychiatric experimentation. The state of the atheist is not natural. God is revealed to men also for the simple reason that man is the image of God. The noose, the ruling noose, the mind, reveals and discovers God not only because man can sense God with his noose, but the very presence of man's mind reveals the eternal mastermind, the eternal noose. For me to have a mind and to be able to think, and this is not my doing, obviously. Someone must be really foolish to think that they created their own mind, must be a real imbecile. So since I have a mind, we can easily conclude that the person who created me has a mind as well. This is greatly stated in one of the Psalms. David says, he who created the eyes, can he not see? He who has made the ear, can he not hear? Does he not understand? So we can see now that through the created beings, especially through men, the presence and existence of God is being manifested. And finally, we see the presence of God through history. God enters man's history. He orchestrates the events without affecting the human will. God always has the final word. I will use an example so you can understand this very thing. Let's think of a boat, a commercial ferry boat or a cruise liner. In it we have passengers and personnel. Passengers and personnel move around. They go about their business. A passenger goes to the cabin. Another decides to go for a dip in the pool. The third one goes to the main deck for coffee. The fourth goes to the dining room. The mechanic stays in the engine room, the captain in the captain chair, everyone moves about independently the way they ought to and according to their own will. Each person has the personal freedom to move and carry on as they wish inside the boat. Their will is not restricted, per se, in any way, shape, or form. However, the entire ship is moving towards a certain point. This is the relationship of history, people, and God. While people in general are free to choose their actions on their trip through history, the reality is that the entire cruise liner of history is directed towards a certain purpose, a certain destination. So in this sense, God intervenes through history. He interferes to lead and direct, to punish, to destroy, to rescue, or to reward. As we mentioned a number of times, the entire Old Testament is a theology of history and a revelation in the history of the nation of Israel. Even the incarnation of the Son of God takes place in the area of history, but also covers the entire human prehistory. When God tells Eve that one of her descendants will come to save her, with this 
we see that the incarnation is not placed in the area of a specific time in history, let's say 2,000 years ago, but the entrance of God in history through his incarnation covers the entire history of mankind. From prehistoric times to the latter historic times until the last day. These things are inconceivable, truly inconceivable, and the person who can abide and live by these becomes full of divine awe in front of God, in front of his love and his interference. So the revelation of God exists also in the personal history of men and not only in the universal history. Would you like me to tell you my life history? I would not tell you anything other than how God entered my own personal life. Would you like me to listen to your life history? All of you who are listening to me at this very moment, in these chairs of St. Achilles, listening to the Word of God, how you managed to find your way here to hear the Word of God sitting in these chairs, you will relate to me the history of God in your life. So God does not only enter in our national history, but he also enters the history of every individual, of every human being, whether believer or unbeliever, pious or impious, young or old. There is no such thing as luck. Luck does not exist. God governs everything. However, he never restricts the freedom of the individual. The supernatural divine revelation fulfills and perfects the natural divine revelation. Mount Sinai, the prophets, and above all, the incarnation of the Son of God itself make up the supernatural divine revelation. The supernatural divine revelation can be internal or external. The external or outward is already established by the appearance of God in our history in the person of Jesus Christ. It is already established and there is nothing more for us to there's nothing more for us to expect more so than what was revealed from the person of Jesus Christ. When I say we have no more expectations, we don't mean that we don't expect the second coming. Yes, but in the person of Jesus Christ, the same person. In other words, we don't have anything outside or beyond the person of Jesus Christ. The prophets told and preached the word of God. Moses saw the glory of God, but history has now seen the person of the incarnate Son of God. He will see it again, but he will be the same person. Consequently, we will not have any new revelation from what we already have, and this is what we mean when we say that the outward or exterior revelation is already established. What remains is the inward supernatural revelation, which continues in the life of the faithful, all the faithful, to help them to understand and accept the outward revelation. In other words, God reveals himself inside me, so I can call Jesus Lord. St. Paul expresses this in his words. No one can say Jesus is Lord without it being in the Holy Spirit. This means that 
the Spirit of God illumines me to confess Jesus as Lord or God. No one comes to the Son if not allured by the Father. The opposite is true, which show the equality of the Holy Trinity. I will never be able to come near Jesus Christ if the Father does not draw me near. How does the Father draw me? Well, this is an invisible, mystical matter. But the Father allures me, and the Spirit of God illumines me to confess Jesus Christ God. Those who do not confess Jesus Christ to be God, they do not have the Spirit of God. It is more obvious than obvious. He who confesses Jesus Christ to be the incarnate Son of God, he has the Spirit of God. And if we do not have the Spirit of God, St. Paul is very clear on this matter. Without the Spirit of God, we can do nothing. We are not in the area or hope of salvation. So we have this inner divine revelation in order to accept the outward historical revelation, to accept the incarnate Son of God, Jesus Christ. With this last form of the inner revelation, my friends, we are called to study and understand the book of the Revelation. Let's not think that while we are leafing the pages of this book, while analyzing this book, we will be able to understand anything in it in the absence of, of divine illumination. Let's not think this, because understanding is not academic or grammatical or poetic, or philological. Understanding is spiritual. A philologist understands the Bible from the scope of literature, grammar, composition. But these are nothing more than external elements, and what we desperately need to understand is that this is the living Word of God who will speak in our hearts. So we, we are in desperate need of this internal revelation to understand the book of the Revelation. John, and we need to pay attention to this, John accepted a direct inner revelation. John saw Christ face to face directly. However, we must accept this through the messenger of Jesus Christ, John, and also through the tradition of the church and the 2,000 years of church history and through the written paper, through the book, that we'll read, and if you will, through the hearing of the Word of God, through this, the speaker. So I must accept this revelation through and despite all these continuous codings, which is the messenger John, time of 2,000 years, the tradition, the printed paper, and the voice of the speaker. So I must uncover and strip all these codings to come to accept the revelation of God. These are coatings or coverings that are essential, however, and if I disregard these, then I am left with nothing. I will accept them, and I will begin to uncover them. Another example, let's say I enter a room, a building. I walk through the hallway, I go through a door, I open it, I go through, and I continue to walk until I reach my destination. So I must go through these coverings until I will personally find the final revelation, to find God who will speak in my heart. Now, how is this going to take place? The only way is through faith 
through obedience and submission to the voice of the church. All the things that we said, John, the tradition, the time of 2,000 years, the printed paper, the voice of the speaker, with submission to the church and with humility, my friends. Faith, in essence, is to conceive what is revealed through the spoken word with the historical form penetrating the coverings which the historical form itself and the word with his incarnation have placed over them. All these factors that we designated as coverings will utilize, we will utilize to help us to reveal God to us. This is why what is needed is a new revelation to help us understand the revelation of God. And without this type of revelation, the book of the Apocalypse remains sealed, a sealed book with seven seals. Why, you will ask, because this is how God wants it. Doesn't God have the right to do as he wishes, to project something as he wants it? Is he not? The Lord, this is God, how God wants and chooses things to be. He wants these coverings to be in place to restrict human haughtiness and arrogance. Man should not depend on himself to say, I will find all this out by myself. Or, I am special enough and the Spirit of God talks to me directly. God speaks through me. Or as a lot of the heretics keep saying. No, you will find things out through the words of the speaker, through the printed paper, through St. John the Evangelist who heard all these. This will bring you humility and will restrict your human haughtiness. Furthermore, man can only be saved through his fellow men. A man is saved through the church and by the church. Individual salvation does not exist. Let's recognize this. Someone who would wish to be saved alone without the help of the church and the help of the brothers and sisters, let's get this, he will never be saved. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him. So this is revelation about Jesus Christ being enacted through Jesus Christ which God gives to him, meaning Jesus Christ. So this revelation talks about Jesus Christ and is presented by Jesus Christ. So the source of this revelation, revelations rather, is God himself. What is significant here is that the script does not say revelation of the Son of God because the Son of God is of equal value with the Father. And the one person of the Trinity cannot reveal things to another person of the Holy Trinity. The three persons of the Trinity are one in essence. There are no quote-unquote secrets between the persons of the triune God. All three persons are infinite, all-knowing, all-wise. The three persons of the triune God Jesus Christ refers to the human nature of Christ, and the human nature of Christ is not infinite. However, through the hypostatic or personal union with the Word of God, the human nature of Christ 
now it can be considered omnipresent, present everywhere, but not by its own merit, but by the hypostatic union with God the Word. So God gives this revelation to Jesus Christ, who will in turn give it to John, and John will pass it down to the church. Now, how did Christ receive the revelation from God? And by God, we mean the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We see it in the fifth chapter in verses 6 and 7, in the very book of the Revelation that we are studying. Then I saw a lamb looking as it was slain. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. So I saw in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures, these living creatures are the cherubim, I saw a slain lamb, but standing up. Slain, but standing. This is the very thing that Christ will tell John in a direct revelation. I am the one who died, and behold, I live again. Behold, I live. The Son of God cannot become dead. The divine nature obviously cannot die, so the human nature died because of the crucifixion and the burial in the tomb. What a beautiful image, this slain and standing lamb. The ancient church had this as the most precious symbol, the most beloved symbol of the original church, the standing slain lamb. And those that deeply study the book of the Revelation, their most dear part is this point of the standing slain lamb. However, someone needs to progress very much to come to love these things. Then he came and took something out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. He took a book, a scroll. He does not specify who was sitting out of great respect. God was sitting, as we will see in our interpretation. So this is how Jesus Christ received the revelation from God the Father, or God generally, the triune God. God the one sitting on the throne. And now, who's going to open this scroll, this book? The angel will say in the fifth chapter, who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? No one was found, no one was found worthy to open this book. And John was weeping. He was crying. The angel says, do not weep. Someone was found. The slain lamb can open the book. He will open the book. In other words, he will reveal. This is why the book is the revelation of Jesus Christ, meaning that it reveals and manifests Christ, and consequently the revelation takes place through Jesus Christ. This is the meaning of the words the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him. 
So he gave unto him to show his servants, whose servants? The servants of Jesus Christ. To show what? To show these things which will define the contents of the book, and it also expresses the purpose why this book was given. What will it show? Things which must shortly take place. Those things that must take place quickly. Which must take place. This must, my friends, has a great theological dimension in the Holy Scripture. Please allow me to use the rest of our remaining time to see this must of the Holy Scriptures. We run into this must very often. Let's see some verses in Daniel chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what must be in the last days. In Matthew 16:21, we read, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things and be killed. He must. Why? And look, when Christ resurrected, he tells his disciples, Luke 24, 26, Was it not a must that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? This must, my friends, is difficult, full of mystery and inconceivable. We could simply ask, why was it necessary for these things to take place? These things which are not at all pleasant, like the cross, for example, or the persecution of the church and the faithful until the second coming of Christ. The church, my friends, needed to set out on a specialized type of journey through history which would be full of temptation and persecution from the world. But we see that this must, this necessity of the church to travel a journey full of tribulation and persecution comes to parallel the must of journey of Christ. It could not happen any differently. Why? Because the church is the very body of Christ. So when Christ says that I must be killed, I must be crucified, then the church must also say that I must be killed, I must be crucified. Do not panic. Were you baptized? Were we baptized? Do we want to be Christians? Let's finally understand this. Christ was crucified. We must also be crucified. Christ was persecuted. We will be persecuted as well, most likely. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And here is the parallel verse. If they persecuted me, this is the must of Christ, they will also persecute you. This is the must of the church. Christ says, I must go to Jerusalem to suffer many things, to be crucified. This is parallel to the verse of St. Paul through many trials in the Acts of the Apostles when they stoned him in Lystra and the disciples went to bury his body at night and they found him alive and well 
And he arose to tell the disciples that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. The disciples could have asked him, Holy Apostle Paul, why must we? Couldn't you have avoided the stoning? No, it was a must. There's great mystery and depth here. So the must of Christ is to go up to Jerusalem. St. Paul's must is that through many tribulations we will enter the kingdom of God. And these things that must take place quickly of the book of the Revelation, these are all parallel. Why is this? Because as far as this must of Christ, the people would oppose the person of Christ. They would oppose his mission. And in order to have it come to pass, and the work of salvation needed to be accomplished by any means, so Christ made it to the cross. And the organ of the negation of salvation, the cross, became the way of salvation. This is why the Lord said, I must, and the church must. For the same reason, the world would not accept her presence, and it would go to war against her. As we are speaking, my friends, do you have any idea what the powers of darkness are orchestrating at the expense of the church? They are frothing at the mouth. They are frothing at the mouth, and they will continue to do so. So the church's lot is to be in this state of war. The church had to stand to be established and to wait Christ's second coming. Doesn't St. Paul say that the mystery of Holy Eucharist will be continually and will continue to be offered until Christ comes back, until he returns? So the reaction of the world is irreconcilable. I'm sure you heard this term, irreconcilable differences. Most of the times this term is used loosely when one of both partners in a marriage become bored. But in this case, yes, the world has irreconcilable differences with the church. So this must of the church is unavoidable. That's all it is. In other words, this inability to avoid certain confrontations in the relations between the church and the world is expressed by the term must these things that must be. So this must does not express the necessity of these events, confrontations. Many people may argue and say that there's a certain forcefulness here, certain coercion which may bound a person's freedom of choice. This must does not express the necessity of these events, not necessarily, but the necessity of salvation from which all these different events stem from. Salvation is an irrevocable action of the love of God. Let's hear this, irrevocable. God loves and wants to save the world. So what if the enemies of the church are frothing at the mouth? What if the devil rents and raves? So what? God wants to save the world. And this is how this must comes into play. So the devil is irrevocable in his actions and unrepentant. The church and salvation is also irrevocable, so confrontation is unavoidable. This is where this must comes in. The end result 
the events of the past, present, and future must take place. Now, you may say, we don't exactly understand this, my friends. We get it and we don't get it. It is truly a mystery. Now, why does God allow this unpleasant sort of solution? You will say, isn't God capable to find an easier method? This is a great temptation for many Christians. Why isn't God able to intervene? But if he intervenes, my brother, you will tell him that he's controlling you. He's binding your freedom. Now, why does God choose this seemingly worse solution? I will tell you. Because God loves and he wants to show his love. He offers his son to be crucified. He could have used another method to save the world. But he wants to save the world with love. And his salvation, moved by love, is a deep mystery. And it constitutes a mere fold of the love of God. St. Isaac the Syrian reveals this for us. When I first read it, I was not all that impressed. And I'm afraid that you may feel this way initially as well. Now I'm totally satisfied with it. Let's listen to it, which is in his 81st homily. In the final analysis of all these things that God and Lord, due to his strong love for his creation, and this is the key, strong, great love, burning love, the Greek word is bothos, He gave his son to a death on the cross. For God so loved the world that he gave his own and only son to suffer death for it. Not because God could not save us in a different way. But this was the way that God found to show and teach us his immense love. Our mind cannot grasp this. Cannot grasp it. He touched us. He drew near to us through the death of his son, to show and tell us how much he loves us. He loves us exceedingly. And if he had something even more precious than this, he would have given it to us. So our human race would find its way back to him, to draw near him. And because of his great love, he did not wish to bind our freedom. And even though he could do this, he chose to let us come to him in the spirit of love. All these things, my friends, express the mystery. Those things that must take place. So with this solution, first of all, the love of God is made obvious. And at the same time, the freedom of the individual is preserved. God is truly wonderful. These two elements, freedom and love, espoused and working together in the life of the faithful individual will give birth to holiness. And this is the holiness we need to enter the kingdom of God. Those things that must take place quickly. Quickly. How quickly? St. Andrew of Caesarea says some of these prophecies are at hand, ready to happen. And if you will, they they will begin to happen as soon as the book was written. And those things that will be at the end of history and are prophesied will not take long because 1,000 years for God are as one day as yesterday. 
But in the recording of the revelation, my friends, those things that will take place start out as chain, as a chain that extends until the close of history. This quickly means a quick start, but not necessarily a fulfillment of these revelations, but a constant and continuing revelation with the total fulfillment of this revelation save towards the very end. So the beginning and the end of these events, therefore, are seen under the spectrum of one and the same image. What is significant, and we will close after this, is that this pre-Christian must, which we have seen in Daniel and other prophets, is indefinite time-wise, while the Christian must is definite and in quick time. For instance, when God tells Abraham this is 2,000 years before Christ, that he will be a father of a great nation and reveal the Messiah to Abraham. When we read about these things in the Old Testament, we get the feeling that these events will take place in the very, very distant future. There's no definite time frame. It's indefinite. However, these prophecies, which showed no urgency, no urgency at all, materialized in 2,000 years. Christ came 2,000 years after Abraham. Now remember, the post-Christian must tells us that these things will take place quickly, which gives us the feeling of urgency. Like Professor Bracciotti says, it's like we can hear and sense the galloping of the upcoming events, like the galloping of horses, which can be heard when the riders approach a town. Now, these events are on their way quickly, and yet 2,000 years have passed by. Now we can pose the question, might the end of history be near, or at least the beginning of the end? My friends, perhaps most likely.